Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be at ASI. One of the most exciting things for me, Father, is to see all of the ministries that are springing up worldwide. It is an exciting thing. We know that you're doing this in the last moments of history because it's going to take many, many hands to reach out to so many different people who have different ways of thinking and have different interests. And all of these ministries provide for a need that people have. And I just ask, Father, that you will bless ASI, that you will bless um, everyone at the booths uh, in the exhibit area. And Lord, we long for the coming of Jesus. We're tired of living in this world of sin and sorrow, sickness, suffering, and death. And we know it's time to go home. But we know that there must be a revival and reformation among your people before that can happen. And so we ask that as we study this important subject this afternoon, that you will be with us through the ministration of your spirit. And we thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the material that I'm going to be sharing with you this afternoon comes from the book, The Great Controversy, chapter 27. That's pages 461 to 478. Uh, the title of the chapter is Modern Revivals. Now, what led me to choose this particular subject is the fact that uh, Elder Ted Wilson, last year at General Conference, uh, emphasized and underlined that the greatest need of our church is the, that of revival and reformation. And at Secrets Unsealed, we made it a point to emphasize and underline this uh, ever since uh, he gave his uh, sermon at the General Conference. Now, Ellen White agrees. If you'll notice in the material, Ellen White uh, says, inspired by God's Spirit, in Review and Herald, March 22, 1887, the following. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Pretty clear statement, isn't it? So what is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs? Revival and Reformation. And this should be, according to her, our first work. Now the question is, what is revival and what is Reformation? Ellen White has this remarkable statement in Review and Herald, February 25, 1902, where she defines what revival is and what Reformation is. And then I'm going to make some comments uh, about this passage. This is what she states. A revival and reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. In other words, they can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated because one follows the other. So she says revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies, and now she's going to use three phrases to define what revival is. Revival signifies a renewal of spiritual life. What does the word renewal mean? It means that you must have lost, right? That you must have lost life. And it needs to be what? Renewed. So she says a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening. What does the word quickening mean? 
We don't use that word very much anymore. It doesn't have anything to do with speed. It means to make alive. So once again, you can't make alive that which has not what? Which has not died. So she says, a quickening of the powers of mind and heart. And then she explains it in a different way. A resurrection from spiritual death. You see how those three phrases are basically saying the same thing with different terms? Revival means a renewal of spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of the mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. So, so far, revival. Now let's talk about Reformation. She says, Reformation signifies a reorganization. And now notice, a change in ideas and theories. On what level are ideas and theories? They have to do with your what? With your thinking. Ideas and theories are something that we have where? In our minds. So basically she's saying that Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in our thinking, that is in our ideas and theories, but not only in what we think, but she also says in what? In habits and practices. That has to do with our behavior. So in other words, Reformation has to do with a change in thinking and a change in our behavior. She continues saying, Revival will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work and in doing this work, they must blend. See, she said they're two different things, but they must blend. It's kind of like faith and works. Faith and works, Ellen White also says that they must blend. And so we're going to discuss what is revival and what is reformation. Now, let's go through these questions to see if we understood the statement. Who brings about revival and reformation? The Holy Spirit. Are revival and reformation the same thing? No. What three synonymous expressions does Ellen White use to explain the meaning of the word revival? A quick a renewal of spiritual life, quickening of the powers of the mind and heart, a resurrection from spiritual death. Three synonymous expressions. Which two changes are accomplished by Reformation? A change in thinking and a change in what? In conduct. What will happen if Reformation is not linked with revival? It will not produce what? The good fruit of righteousness. And finally, are revival and Reformation mutually separable? No. They're distinguishable, but they are not separable. Now, let's reach some conclusions on the basis of this statement. Some conclusions. Revival without Reformation is not genuine revival. Do you agree with that? Reformation without revival is not true Reformation. And now, this is very important, revival without Reformation is mere emotionalism or sentimentalism. It's pure emotion. If there's no change and reorganization in the life. 
But what happens if you have reformation without revival? That is what? That is legalism or fanaticism. People who are constantly saying you need to be a vegan and you need to dress like this. And you can't do this and you can't do that. You know, when there is revival, those things will take care of themselves. So reformation without revival is legalism or fanaticism. Like the Pharisees in the times of Christ. Were they, did they apparently, uh, were they apparently reformed? Did they live reformed lives? Did they tithe? Were they strict about Sabbath keeping? Did they fast twice a week? Oh, they had seemingly very reformed lives. But it was not a reformation that came from what? From revival. And so you can read there Matthew 23 verses 23 to 28. The conflict between the outward and the inward. He, God, Jesus says, outwardly you appear righteous to men. You know, you're white at sepulchers, but inwardly you're, you're rotten, full of rotten bones. So there was a conflict between the outward and the inward. They had reformation, so-called, but it was not produced by a renewal of spiritual life. It was not produced by revival. Now let's take a look at the elements of true revival and reformation. There's a process in revival and reformation. And I have 10 elements that we're going to take a look at. Element number one is that Adam and Eve were created spiritually alive and their behavior reflected it. See? They were created alive spiritually and because of that their behavior reflected the fact that they were alive. Now according to the creation account in Genesis, Adam and Eve were originally created perfect. This means that they were created ontologically, that is in their being, they were created spiritually alive. This spiritually alive condition was reflected in their conduct, which was in perfect conformity with God's holy law. So because they were spiritually alive, what was their conduct like? their conduct was in harmony with God's holy law. That's the first premise. Is that the condition to which God wants us to return? Of course. You can't understand what God wants for us unless we understand what God's plan was originally. So we have to start with Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden before sin. Now let's go to element number two. Sin led to spiritual death that is in their being which in turn changed what? They changed their conduct. You see, because co your conduct reflects where you, whether you are spiritually alive or dead. Now, as a result of sin, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants died spiritually. And for this reason, they were unable to live in harmony with the law of God. Because they were spiritually dead, their conduct, conduct reflected that. Now let's notice a couple of Bible verses that emphasize that fact. Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Here the Apostle Paul makes this very clear. That as a result of sin, man died spiritually and his conduct reflected it. It says there, and you, he made what? Which means that they must have been what? Dead. And you, he made alive who were dead. There it is. Is that their condition? Yeah, they were spiritually what? Dead. Now, did, was that reflected in their behavior? 
Absolutely, because he continues saying, in trespasses and sins, does it have to do with conduct? Yes. In which you once walked. Whenever you find the word walked in the New Testament, it has to do with behavior. It has to do with your conduct. And so the Apostle Paul says, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice also Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. The same idea that spiritual death leads to a change in conduct, a negative change in conduct. There the Apostle Paul says, and you, being dead, that's the condition, right? And you being dead, in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that has to do with conduct, he has what? Made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so our first point is that Adam and Eve were created spiritually alive, and their conduct reflected perfect harmony with God's law. When Adam and Eve sinned and all of their descendants, human beings died spiritually and their conduct reflected it. Now let's go to element number three. The heart of sinful man is deceitful above all things and cannot be trusted to discern its true condition. Do you agree with that? The Bible teaches that. Notice Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And of course the wise man Solomon says, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. Because our sinful heart is deceptive. Now let's continue. The unconverted human heart is a powerful and malignant rationalizer. It does its utmost to justify, trivialize, and excuse sin. Like Adam and Eve immediately after that transgression, the unconverted person seeks to offer excuses and rationalizations for sin. Is that true? Notice some of these expressions. The devil made me do it. The flesh is weak. If it wasn't for so and so. The attractions of the, wor of the world are too strong. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's not such a big thing. God's grace covers a multitude of sins. It's in my genes. All sorts of excuses the unregenerated heart offers, just like Adam and Eve immediately after their transgression. Do you know when Adam and Eve Im immediately transgressed, they were not repentant for their sin. They weren't sorry. The greatest evidence that you really are sorry for your sin is the fact that you say, I blew it, no one is responsible except for me. The minute you try, you blame other people, there's not true repentance. Adam and Eve course Adam said this woman that you gave to be with me and the woman said this serpent that you made so they're passing the buck because their sinful hearts now cannot discern their true condition and the seriousness of their act 
Now because the heart cannot be trusted to show us our true condition, we need a reliable mirror that will show us what we are really like. Are you following me? Very important point. Now let's go to element number four. There is only one trustworthy source that can show us the true condition of our heart, and that is who? God. We can't trust our our heart's not going to show us what we're like, what we're truly like. And so we need an external objective source that'll tell us exactly what we're like, exactly what our problem is, that'll tell us you're spiritually dead and your conduct reflects it, no matter how much you might try to excuse what you've done. Now notice Jeremiah 17 verse 10. We just read a few moments ago, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now the answer is given in verse 10. I, the Lord, <laughs> search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So what does God say? Don't trust in your heart. It's deceitful. It's wicked above everything. If you want to know your true condition, he says, only I am able to show you your true condition so that you can feel your need. Notice Psalm 139 and verses 23 and 24, the same idea coming through. Here the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what is the only trustworthy source to see our need, our spiritual death and uh, our need in a change of conduct? Only God. We cannot trust our heart. Now let's go to element number five. God searches out sin. Now notice, don't, don't just sit and say, okay God, show me how bad I am. Show me that I'm dead and show me how bad my conduct is. And God by some supernatural revelation is going to... No, God has something that, that He uses to show that condition. And that comes, brings us to element number five. God searches out sin and exposes it how? Through the means of His Word. His external objective Word. God says, I search the heart, but he does it through the instrumentality of his word or of the Bible. The Holy Spirit and the written word are inseparably linked. That is to say the Spirit has a sword, and that sword is the word of God. The Holy Spirit brings about true revival and reformation by the study and the preaching of the word of God. This the Word of God detects sin, and if we consent, it will cut it out. Now notice this, this passage in Hebrews 4 that indicates this point, that God searches sin out and penetrates the very core of our being through the Word. Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And notice how, how deep it goes. P 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Does it go pretty deep? Basically, if you look at this, it's, what it's saying is that it uh, discerns us mentally, physically, and spiritually. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, that is, from the sight of the word, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So what is it that comes in to detect sin? What detects sin? How does God show us our true condition? Through the Word of God. And I say this forcefully and truthfully, there can never be a true revival and reformation where the Word of God is not prayerfully studied or preached. All great revivals in Christian history have had the preaching of God's Word at the center. And the reason is because the Word of God is the great and inerrant detector of sin, and thus shows us our true condition. The Bible is the light that enters our hearts and rebukes and expels the darkness. And now let me give you an, an example from Adventist history. Probably all of us have heard of William Miller, right? Ellen White says that this was the greatest revival since apostolic times. The Millerite movement. The greatest revival since apostolic times. Now what caused this revival? Why, why was it so extensive? Why did it reach so many people? Did it have to do with the messenger? No. Was it because of the emotion and the feeling and, and you know the singing and all of these things? No. There was an individual who was an eyewitness of one of William Miller's meetings. Ellen White quotes this testimony that I'm going to read now. The name of this individual is L.D. Fleming, and he went to listen to William Miller at Portland, Maine, and he explained why William Miller's preaching was so powerful. This comes, of course, from Review and Herald, November 25, 1884. This is how it reads. Things here are moving powerfully. Last evening about 200 requested prayers, and the interest seems constantly increasing. The whole city seems agitated. Brother Miller's lectures have not the least effect to frighten people. They are far from it. The great alarm is among those who do not come near them. Many who stay away and oppose seem excited and perhaps alarmed, but those who candidly hear are far from excitement or alarm." Now he's going to describe why these meetings were so powerful. The interest awakened by his lectures is of the most deliberate and dispassionate kind. What does he mean by deliberate and dispassionate? Ellen White describes it as a message that appeals to the unimpassioned reason. No excitement, not the emotion of the moment, but simply the message coming into the, into the mind and registering, and people get excited because of the message that has come in. Not the excitement, the music, and all of these other things. Not that music isn't important in revival, 
but it's not the key element in revival. So he, uh, Ellen White quoting this a testimony says, the interest awakened by, these, by his lectures is of the most deliberate and dispassionate kind. Though this is the greatest revival I ever saw, yet there is the least passionate excitement about it. So don't you think that, that uh, you know, revival means raising your hands and saying hallelujah and dancing in the aisles and rolling and laughing in the spirit? No, 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 no. That's not true revival. So he says, Though this is the greatest revival I ever saw, yet there is the least passionate excitement about it. It seems to take a deep hold on the main part of the community. And then he says, what produces the effect is this. Brother Miller simply takes the sword of the Spirit, unsheathed, and lays its sharp edge on the naked heart, and it cuts. <laughs> it's powerful. That is all. Before the edge of this mighty weapon, infidelity falls, and universalism withers, false foundations vanish, and Babel's merchants wonder. It seems to me that this must be a little the nearest to apostolic revivals of anything that modern times have witnessed. Is that a powerful statement? From an eyewitness about what gave power to the Millerite movement. It was the preaching of God's Word. Ellen White explains how the Word detects sin and cuts it out. In the next statement, Signs of the Times, May 17, 1883, she says, The worldliness in the church, which is the great cause of spiritual death, is attributable to the influence of selfish, ease-loving members. What is the greatest cause of spiritual death? Selfish, ease-loving members. Now I like the way she describes this. The progress of this deadly malady must be checked. The surgeon's knife cuts deep when it is necessary to remove festering pestilent matter. Now notice what she's comparing this to. So the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, must be made to cut to the heart, or the evil will never be removed. But how can it cut to the heart if we're not studying it? How can it cut to the heart if we're not preaching it? That's the reason why the devil has made it, has made it so in many Adventist services to emphasize the praise and the singing and everything and then maybe a 10 minute sermon. Because the devil knows that where the word is preached there is power to change and to transform lives. That's the true secret of revival and reformation. Now I have an example here in this material. Let's suppose that someone has problems with pornography. Is that a big problem these days? Yes. It's huge even among the clergy. One day that person decides to read the Gospels and turns to Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He's reading the Beatitudes where Jesus says, whoever looks upon a woman to covet her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This scripture then speaks to the person saying, that's your problem. 
So what this person did, this person started studying scripture and now scripture is studying him. <laughs> Are you following me? Scripture tells him, hey, what you're reading, that's your problem. And then scripture says, you want me to cut it out? Does it hurt? Does surgery hurt? You better believe it does. Let me ask you, is surgery worth it? But what if it hurts? What would you rather have, a little hurt now or a bigger hurt later? You know, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said that if your right eye offends you, uh, poke it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right foot of, uh, is a cause of stumbling, cut it off. Jesus is not saying that we're supposed to be cutting off our hands and our feet and poking out our eyes. What he's saying is that sometimes for us to give up sin, it is as painful as if you poked out your eye or you cut off your foot or you cut off your hand. It's a painful process to have scriptures cut it out. But it will save our lives. Like cutting out a cancerous tumor. So scripture then speaks to this person saying, that's your problem. After detecting the problem, the word speaks to the conscience and offers to cut out the cancer that is destroying the soul. Now I have a word of caution here. If we come to the Bible with preconceived notions or an agenda, it will not reveal to us our true condition and need. We must come to the Bible with a sincere heart and desire to practice what we learn, or else we will attempt to justify all sorts of sinful practices, such as eating pork. Doesn't the Bible say that prayer sanctifies whatever we eat? Going to church on Sunday, doesn't it say that the apostles, uh, you know, the apostle preached on a Sunday night? Going to the movies? Living a gay lifestyle. Some people use the Bible to defend a gay lifestyle. Dressing immodestly. Listening to worldly music, etc. You know, if we come to the Bible to try and justify those practices, and we don't come with a sincere heart, we're not going to be benefited at all by our study of Scripture. Now let's go to element number six. The law of God, this is a little more specific, the word of God points out sin, but now we're going to deal with a, something a little more specific. The law of God reveals the absolute and beautiful perfection of the character of Jesus and our sinful condition in contrast. Now let's read Psalm 19 verse 7, and then I'm going to underline a very important point here. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. Does the law of God have anything to do with conversion? That's what it says. The law of God is perfect, what? Converting the soul. And I say, no, wait a minute. You're saying that the law brings about conversion? Yes, let me explain how. As Adventists, in the past, we have been very law-centered. If I asked you, for example, what is sin? What would your definition be? Absolutely, you gave the good Adventist answer. What is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. And that, Ellen White says that that's the only definition provided in Scripture. 
It's a good definition. But sin is transgression of the law. But now listen to what I'm going to say. The law is more than a written code. The law is more than a list of written regulations that God expects us to obey. The law, as we all know, is a reflection of the character of Christ. It is a written description of who Christ is in his person. Now notice this statement from Ellen White, The Great Controversy, page 478. She says, It is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. What must be brought to the fore in order to have revival? God's what? God's law. But what is the law? The law is simply a written description of who Jesus is in his person. That's why Jesus said, and this is prophetically in the Psalms, I delight to do your will. Your law is what? Is written in my heart. In fact, the way I like to express this is that Jesus was the incarnation of the law. He was the law in human flesh. He was the law lived out. So how does sin, how does the law point out sin? It's not the bare list of rules and regulations of commandments. The law is a reflection of Jesus Christ. And so really, who do I look at that makes me see my terrible sinfulness and the absolute beauty and perfection and holiness of Christ? It is He. So it's more than just looking at the Ten Commandments. It's looking at the Ten Commandments as they're revealed in the beautiful, lovely character of Jesus Christ. When I see His character, His beautiful, lovely character, how do I see myself? You know why we, why we look good to ourselves? Because we're always comparing ourselves with others. <laughs> and when I compare myself with someone else, I always look better. <laughs> but when I compare myself with Jesus Christ, it's a different story. Isn't it? Notice Ellen White had this to say, speaking about Jesus. He was the embodiment of the law of God. What does embodiment mean? He was the law in bodily form. So you don't just look at the bare Ten Commandments. Okay, now how did I measure up today? No, you look at the law as, re as reflected in Jesus. You say, wow, he's so beautiful and so perfect. Look, I'm a miserable sinner that I am. In contrast. Are you with me? You know, one of my favorite national parks in the United States is Grand Teton National Park. In fact, there's this place, this is in northwest Wyoming, there's this place that I love to go to, I haven't been there for several years, where you have these ragged mountains in the background, and then you have some beautiful pine trees, and then you have a lake. And I like to go there early, real early in the morning. There's not a ripple not a bit of wind. It's just absolutely calm and serene. You know, several years ago I took pictures of that place. And when I had the picture, this was before digital photography, 
And when I had the pictures developed, I could not tell which side of the picture was up and which part of the picture was down because the reflection was so perfect in the lake. That's the relationship between Christ and his law. Jesus is the original. His law is the reflection. But we cannot only see the reflection, we must see Christ. So when we look in the law, continuing here, when we look in the law of God, we see in it a reflection of the character of Jesus. We see his holiness and purity. And in contrast, we see our own filthiness and wickedness. We see that when we fail to measure up to the law, we actually fail to measure up to Jesus because Jesus is the law in human flesh. This leads us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, who can deliver me from this body of death? Along with the prophet Isaiah, we will exclaim, I am undone. And with the apostle Peter, we will cry out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Thus the Holy Spirit implants in our hearts a hatred for the ugliness of sin. And a longing desire to reflect the beautiful character of Jesus. Does the law play a role in conversion? Does the word of God play a role in conversion? There can be no conversion experience without the, the word of God and the law as seen in Jesus Christ. You understand we're contemplating Christ as the embodiment or incarnation of the law. We need to behold Jesus. Now let's go to element number seven. When we behold Jesus we not only see the absolute loveliness of his character in contrast to the ugliness of our own, but we also see him on the cross bearing the ugliness of our sins. Are you following me, what I'm saying or not? So I look at Jesus and say, oh, he's so altogether lovely, altogether beautiful. He lived every principle of the law. Oh, I just long to live that way. I'm such a miserable sinner. I, I, I think wrong and I act wrong and my life is totally unlike the life of Jesus. I'm so miserable. And then I get another picture of Jesus. And that picture of Jesus is the lovely one hanging on the cross. And I say, Lord, you're altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether wonderful. You are the incarnation of the law. What are you doing there? What are you doing on that cross? The law says, obey and live. You obeyed, and here you're dying. Why? And Jesus says, because I loved you so much that I was willing to bear your sins on the cross. If that won't break your heart, nothing will. If that doesn't bring about conversion, nothing will. A vision of the holiness and purity of Jesus as revealed in the law not only shows us our excessive sinfulness, but it also leads us to the cross. It leads us to understand the immense love of Jesus who, though he was altogether lovely, suffered the cruel punishment that we deserve. This leads us to love Jesus and to hate sin for what it did to him. 
Is that making sense? Let's go to element number seven. This will lead us to repent from sin and to confess it and to trust in the merits of Christ's righteousness for forgiveness. Let me just amplify that point just a little bit. You know, when we, are, when we see ourselves in the light of the loveliness of Jesus and the great sacrifice that he made on the cross for our sins, that leads us to repentance. Or it should lead us to repentance. And repentance leads us to confession. And we say to Jesus, Lord, I'm a miserable sinner. I deserve death. But then we say, even though I deserve death, I trust in the fact that you live that perfect life that I should live. You satisfy the demands of the law by your life. And I trust the death that you suffered on the cross in my place. And then I say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I confess my sin. Would you please take your life and death and place them to my account? And at that moment, God looks upon me as if I had never sinned. And at that moment, I am now alive, spiritually speaking. And this leads us to element number eight, conversion or revival. As we discern the loveliness of Christ's character and his immense sacrifice for sin, our selfish heart is broken and we pass from death to life. We have spiritually resurrected from the dead. Notice Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, Notice, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And now notice a very important word, through the washing of regeneration. What does regeneration mean? What does it mean to regenerate? What happens when a generator dies? You have to regenerate it, right? So in other words, this, this is speaking about a renewal of life. And so it says, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the word that is used there, regeneration, is the Greek word polygenesia. It literally means a new beginning. Genesia would be Genesis. Palin is again. So basically what it means, a new beginning or a new genesis. So are you spiritually alive now and your conduct changes because you return to genesis? Absolutely. It also means a return to existence or a coming back from death to life. That's Palin Genesia. So that's the moment of conversion, the moment that life comes into the soul again. Now we go to element number nine. Reformation now flows from revival. When we have been made alive by Christ, our conduct reflects it. Would you agree with that? We walk in newness of life. 
That is, revival from spiritual death leads to reformation in our daily walk with Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, see there's the new life, just as Christ was raised to from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should what? Should walk in newness of life. Does that have to do with our conduct? If we've resurrected with Christ, will our walk with Christ be different? Yes, walk means behavior. He who says that he is in him should walk even as he walked. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. In Great Controversy, Ellen White says on page 462, there is no evidence of genuine repentance unless it works reformation. So people say, oh I've been revived, I've been saved, hallelujah, and your life hasn't changed? That is counterfeit revival. And then she amplifies a little bit more on page 462, she says, the, speaking about those who are truly converted, and now spiritually alive, she says the, thing they once, the things they once hated they now loved, and the things they once loved they hated. The proud and self-assertive became meek and lowly of heart. The vain and supercilious became serious and unobtrusive. The profane became reverent, the drunken sober, and the profligate pure. The vain fashions of the world were laid aside. Are you understanding the relationship between revival and reformation? What happens when there's so-called reformation without revival? We've got lots of people in the church that are that way. They want to beat the church into submission. You know, I have an issue with people in the church who are always criticizing people who are not vegans. Now I believe that being a vegan is a wonderful thing. I really do. But you can't force people to become vegans. They have to have a relationship with Christ. They have to be spiritually alive. And then, even though they might struggle, they will want to be vegans. And the same is true with any other behavior. You know, if we love to go to the movies before, that by the way presented a, a character totally opposite to Christ, you know, I ask young people sometimes, I say, you know, you say that it's okay to go to the movies. Well, uh, if you can invite Jesus Christ to, to come and sit in the movie theater with you uh, to watch adultery and killing and murder and lying and foul language, go. But of course they can't in all honesty say that Jesus would love to go there and he would enjoy sitting there. If you've been revived, you're going to like different things now. Your life is going to change. There's going to be reformation that flows from revival. Now let's go to number 10. Conversion is not a once in a lifetime experience. We must die daily and resurrect daily. And abide in Christ. See this is after we've been made alive. You know there's reformations taking place. But it's a lifetime process. The new life must be nurtured and maintained by a daily relationship with Christ through three things. Bible study, prayer, 
and witnessing, what I call the triangle of sanctification, illustrated in the sanctuary by the three pieces of furniture of the holy place. The table of showbread represents the word of God. The altar of incense represents prayer. And the seven branch candlestick which receives the oil to give light represents us receiving the Spirit to shed the life of Christ to the world. That's a secret of a balanced, sanctified life. There are people who say, pray, pray, pray. I say, hallelujah. But they don't emphasize the study of the Word. The devil would love us to have an unbalanced spiritual life. In fact, Ellen White says that those who only pray eventually will cease to pray. And I'm in favor of prayer, don't get me wrong. I'm in favor of Bible study, but Bible study without prayer is useless. Prayer needs to be accompanied by Bible study. But people who all the time are studying the Bible and praying and they're not witnessing, they have an unbalanced spiritual life and eventually they will suffer spiritual death. The Apostle Paul explained how the follower of Jesus is being transformed on a continual basis. This is a very important verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, what? What are we beholding? The glory of the Lord. What is that glory? Ella White says it's character. And what is it that is a reflection of Christ's character? The law. You can't separate the law from the gospel, folks. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are, notice, are being transformed. Doesn't happen, happen overnight. Are being transformed into the same image. Whose image? Christ's image. From glory to glory. See it's a process. From glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we behold Jesus day by day, we go through a metamorphosis. Do you know that word there, transformed, is the word, the Greek word metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis from. Every day we come to hate sin more, the closer we draw to Jesus, and we love Jesus more and more. Each day we wish to reflect in our lives the holiness of our Savior, and the Holy Spirit whom we received at conversion provides the power to make this possible. But if we're not in the Word, it's not going to happen. If we're sitting and watching movies and all these television programs and, and wasting time on worldly music, it's not going to happen. It's because we don't meet the conditions of spending the time with Christ. We spend, see, in Bible study, He speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to Him. And in witnessing, we speak about Him to others. That's why it's a triangle. When we have this experience, the pastor will no longer have to tell us how to dress what to eat, what programs on television not to watch, what music not to listen to. We will not have to be lectured about reaching out to others with the love of Jesus. Our lives will not change because we fear being lost or because we desire a heavenly reward. The motivating factor will simply be that we want to be like Jesus. Amen. Be like Jesus, this is my song in the home and in the throne. Be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. Now let's talk a little bit about a metamorphosis. 
the word that is used in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being transformed. Transformed is metamorphosis. When I was a child growing up in Venezuela, I was a butterfly collector. I almost became a professional amateur uh, entomologist. And uh, I learned an awful lot about butterflies. I read lots of material on them, and I became very well acquainted with their habits. Now, a butterfly is not born a butterfly. First of all, the mother butterfly lays eggs on a leaf, and then those eggs hatch, and out of the egg comes a what? Caterpillar. Does a butterfly have two births? Yeah, a butterfly has two births, believe it or not. The first birth, the butterfly is born a caterpillar. And then the caterpillar eats from the source where the, leave, where the eggs were laid. And that caterpillar is real little at first and eats and eats and eats and devours the leaves from that tree or bush. And he becomes a large caterpillar. And then something amazing happens. The caterpillar attaches itself to a wall or to a ceiling or someplace and begins weaving a cocoon around itself and encloses itself, buries itself, if you please, in the cocoon. After several days, I've watched the whole process, the cocoon shakes violently and it starts breaking open. And out of the cocoon comes what? A beautiful butterfly, not really. Any of you have seen a butterfly that has just come out of the cocoon? It's all shriveled up because there's a certain liquid that goes into the wings, you know, and he moves his wings and then, you know, the wings extend and it becomes a beautiful butterfly. But at first, you know, we need to be careful about people who have just been converted. You know, there might be a period where they'll be shriveled up for a while. <laughs> but in the course of time, they, their lives will become more and more beautiful. But the amazing thing is that the, the caterpillar is transformed into, from a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. It's metamorphosis. Now I looked on the internet to try and find out if they could explain how this process happens and uh, basically all they could say is there's a change of morphology because of evolution. But the fact is, I haven't been, find, have been able to find anyone that can explain how this transformation takes place. It's a miracle. And it's a total transformation. Let me ask you, does the name of the creature change? It's not called a caterpillar anymore, it's called what? Butterfly. Does that happen with, when people become Christians, followers of Christ? Does their name change? The, do the habits of, the, uh, of this creature change? How about its appearance? Does its appearance change? Does what it eat changes? How about the place it lives? Everything is new and different because there has been a metamorphosis. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 
where he said, therefore if anyone is in Christ, by the way at the moment of conversion when you're baptized and your old life is buried in the waters and you come forth to newness of life, that is the moment that you are now in Christ. Before you were in yourself. But at baptism, when, you're, when you go through the experience, see in baptism we go through the experience of Christ. Symbolically. See, Jesus, the last thing that he did on the cross was he breathed his last, it says, he expired. And then he was buried. What was the first thing that he did when he was called from the tomb on resurrection morning? He breathed again. Stop breathing. While he was in the tomb, he breathed not, and then first thing he does when he's about to come forth from the tomb is that he breathes. What happens when a person's going to be baptized? You know, the pastor's in the baptistry, and he says... Um, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What's the, what's the last thing that the person does before they go under the water? They better. <laughs> they stop breathing. What are they doing while they're under the water? They're still not breathing. What's the first thing they do when they come out of the water? <sighs> Basically, in miniature, we have gone through the experience of Christ symbolically and therefore God reckons our baptism as being in Him. We are included in Him. And we don't have to worry about what God thinks about us anymore because it's all about Him, it's not all about us. Because I died, was buried, and resurrected with Him and in Him. We're accepted in the Beloved. This is the reason if we've gone through this experience, you know, we should never be afraid of death if we are in Christ. If we're outside of Christ, then we need to fear. People ask me, aren't you afraid of getting on airplanes? I can honestly say no. This year I will have flown three million miles in 12 years just on American Airlines. It's <laughs> a lot of miles. People say, can you sleep? Oh, like a baby. When I'm traveling in airplanes, I sleep wonderfully. Aren't you afraid that the plane is going to fall, you get killed? No. Well, why not? Well, that, but I'm in Christ. And you know what? That famous passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The dead in Christ will rise first. So if I'm in Christ, I'm going to rise. So what's the fear? You know, when we're in Christ, the sting of death is gone. Because we know that even though we should die, yet we shall live, as Jesus said. So the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the metamorphosis. Now let's talk just briefly about Nicodemus. Because this, is, this illustrates the point. Was Nicodemus a moral man before his conversion? Did he live a reformed life? Sure he did. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He kept the Sabbath probably better than we do. He tithed the mint, the dill, and the cumin. He fasted twice a week. I mean, he lived a reformed life but it didn't come as a result of the new birth. It was a facade. It was legalism. Ellen White has this 
fabulous comment from Desire of Ages, page 172, where she says this, He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. Can a caterpillar change into a butterfly by trying? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a butterfly whether it kills me. No. It happens by a miracle. She continues saying, There is no safety for one who has merely a legal religion, a form of godliness. And now this is powerful. The Christian's life is not a modification or improvement of the old but a transformation of nature. There is a death to self and sin, and a new life altogether. The change, this change can be brought about only by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. Do we need to abide in Christ while we've been through this experience? Absolutely. Let me give you an illustration so you can understand. Back to the butterfly illustration. I remember the first time that I went to a national park in Venezuela where I used to love to go to catch butterflies. They had these great big blue butterflies. They're called morphos. Spectacular. I remember I went into the national park and I had my net and I had my jar with cotton in the bottom and my little bottle of carbon tetrachloride, deadly poison, that I would pour on the, you know, on the cotton. Man, you put the butterfly in there, and that butterfly, just like that, was dead. I don't collect butterflies anymore. <laughs> My conscience won't let me collect my, it's been several years. But anyway, I went into the national park, and man, I saw this blue butterfly you know, flying, and they fly up and down, up and down. They have a very characteristic way of flying. So I go after him with my net, and I swipe my net at him, and he goes up, and then I swipe when he's above, and he goes down. And man, here I'm crashing into trees because this is a tropical rainforest, crashing into trees and tripping over stones. And, and you know, I wasn't able to catch him. And, and I noticed that the park ranger was standing there kind of with a smile on his face looking at this crazy kid that was about 14 years old, you know, trying to catch these butterflies. So he calls me over, he says, come over here. So I said, okay, well, what's up? He says, why are you killing yourself trying to catch that butterfly? I said, well, because I'm a butterfly collector. He says, but, you know, I can just tell you how to catch those butterflies so easily if you just know what their weakness is. I said, you mean that butterfly has a weakness? Yeah. So, well, what is his weakness? They love bananas. He says, you get a banana, throw the banana on the ground, leave for about a half an hour, come back, and you'll find several of them sitting on the banana. So I did that. And sure enough, about a half an hour later, there were five, of six, five or six of those things sitting on that banana. And all I had to do was take my net and put it over and had six of them, five or six of them. <laughs> you see, their weakness is bananas. Several years later, I went to the same national park with my net and my jar and so on, 
And I go through the gate of the National Park, and the ranger was there at the entrance, and he says, where are you going with that? I said, well, you know, I'm going to go catch butterflies. He says, no, you can't. I said, what do you mean? I've caught butterflies here before. He says, yes, but since last time you were here, this has been declared a national refuge, and you can't kill anything in the park. So you know what I did? I took my banana and I threw it outside the fence. <laughs> and whichever butterfly left the refuge inside the National Park and sat on the banana became fair game. You see, the devil is the great hunter. The devil is out trying to hunt people who have been born again. He's got the unbelievers in his, in his pocket already. He's going after those who have been born again and who are members of Christ's church. Our only protection, folks, is to remain within the city of refuge. Amen. To remain in Christ by an abiding faith in Christ through Bible study, through prayer, through witnessing, to have a living spiritual connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now allow me to end. I think that we have about five minutes left by speaking about genuine and counterfeit revival. There's this idea in the Adventist church these days that in order to have revival in the church we should adopt the worship practices of other Christians. That we should use their methods of evangelism and we could have revival, things like mimes, dramatic presentations, contemporary Christian music, continental breakfasts, and so on. I had some people in my church say, you know, we would have more people in Sabbath school if we offered a continental breakfast for everyone to come. And, and what I tell them is, hey, if coming to worship God isn't incentive enough to come to church on time, why should I appeal to their selfish nature and give them breakfast? You might not agree with me. But shouldn't it be incentive enough to be to Sabbath school because you're going to come and worship the Lord? Why do you have to have a gimmick or artificial attractance? to attract people to the church. Absolutely. Now when I went to Pastor Fresno Central Church 15 and a half years ago, on a good Sabbath there was an attendance of approximately 150 people in a church of 1,200 members. There was a small but influential group in the church that said, Pastor, this church is in dire straits. We need a revival. And what we think would bring revival is to have a praise team with keyboards, you know, more contemporary upbeat music, and then we would have revival. The church would fill. And I looked at them and I said, sorry but no deal. In this church, we're going to focus on the preaching of God's Word Amen. as the element of revival. Praise the Lord. The Lord has blessed our church phenomenally. I remember that one individual uh, there at our first worship committee meeting when he made that suggestion, I mean, it was like the devil got inside of him. 
And when I said we're not going to have keyboards and we're not going to have contemporary Christian music, you know, we're not going to have that kind of thing here. Revival is going to come up based on the correct principles, the word of God, the law of God, contemplating Jesus Christ as our Savior. With his fist, and I'm not exaggerating, he pounded his fist down on that table. I thought he was going to either break the table or break his fist. He was furious, like the devil had gotten him in him. And he said, I'm out of here. And he never came back. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Listen to what Ellen White had to say about counterfeit revivals. Popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. Converts thus gain, listen, converts thus gain have little desire to listen to Bible truth. Little interest in the testimony of apostles and prophets. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attractions for them. A message which appeals to the unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word relating directly to their eternal interests are unheeded. And then she goes on to say the power of godliness has well nigh, well nigh departed from many of the churches. Picnics, church theatricals, church fairs, fine houses, personal display have banished thoughts of God. Lands and goods and worldly occupations engross the mind and things of eternal interest receive hardly a passing notice. Does God promise that there's going to be a true revival that's right around the corner? Do you pray for that revival? Yes. Are you longing for that revival? Yes. Are we meeting the conditions for that revival? That's the key. <laughs> Silence. Let me read in Ellen White, in Great Controversy, page 464, she describes this moment, notwithstanding the widespread declension of faith and piety, there are true followers of Christ in these churches. That is, the, the church is called Babylon. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. That was weak. There, that's better. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths. Notice what they accept. Not the emotion, not the singing, not all these things. They will gladly accept those tr great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. Is the devil going to try to preempt this? Final statement. Great Controversy 464. By the way, you need to read this whole chapter, Modern Revivals. It'll make your hair stand on end. It will give you goosebumps. Because you'll say, this is happening in the religious world today, which means that the true revival is right around the corner. She says, the, enemies of, the enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. That is true revival. And before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit in those churches 
which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. And of course what I have in brackets is mine, thousands attending, great emphasis on love, huge facilities, great emotional experience. There will be manifest what is thought to be a great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. We are seeing that today in the religious world. So the true revival cannot be too far off. Well, I hope you'll take this home, restudy it, pray about it, and folks, let's meet the conditions. Let's not go home and be the same as we always are. Let's grow in our walk with the Lord. Yes? Sure. Did we run out? Okay, whoever did not get the, the handout, give our sister your email, or you can, uh, you can go to our booth and give us your email, Secrets on Seal booth, I'll make sure that it gets to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Yes, Eileen? Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a wonderful God you are. We can't even begin to thank you for, not only for what you do for us, but for who you are. Father, we want to reflect your character and the character of Christ. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to worship you in the beauty of holiness. Father, I just ask that what we study this afternoon won't be merely academic or intellectual, but that it will lead us to a true living, spiritual walk each day with Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I ask, Lord, that you will bless the ASI Convention as it draws to a close this weekend, that you will send your Holy Spirit in power to move hearts so that we might have this revival and reformation that will shake up the world and prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for having been with us this afternoon, and we thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.